I dive into the Word, I wanted you to know that one of the things that I thoroughly enjoyed this summer was having a chance just to dig in and read some great authors uh, that would challenge my mind and things of that nature. And I want to acknowledge Dr. Mark Rutland, who I read several of his books throughout the summer, and, and some of what we're talking about today was birthed out of that reading. And, and I want to make sure that I acknowledge the help that he has given in the study material. But today is a little bit of a different message than what I normally preach. Normally, I'm pretty traditional, you know, three points, conclusion. This is not going to look like that at all. We started a series last week as it related to the God of the unlikely. And today, I would like to take us as a congregation through ways that God has used unlikely vessels and worked at unlikely times so that he can prepare us for what I believe as we trace his footsteps in what he wants to accomplish in our lives and through our church in what many would be considering an unlikely time. And I'm going to do this by reading to you three scriptures today that from the way that you would look at them might not seem to have anything in common. And you might say, I don't understand where we're going with this. If you'll just stay with me to the end, I do believe that you'll see how they fit together. And the first one of those is found in Judges, the very last chapter and the very last verse. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take that and to look at that scripture with me. It simply says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, let me just give you a glimpse into this, that that is not good news. We look at Scripture sometimes through the eyes of an American, and we're going, man, that, that sounds good. You know, to us, it sounds like it's the Declaration of Freedom. You know, don't tread on me. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. It sounds like independence, but that's not what this means at all. It means that at the end of the season of Judges, there was no prevailing or presiding national moral compass. Everybody lived with the deceit of their own heart, and that's what that means. Now, if you're using a literal Bible, a real Bible with pages to it, you can turn over one page to the book of Ruth. If you have an electronic Bible, you might have to go back and touch and, and create the next Bible on there. But I want you just to look at what comes next. Now, the book of Ruth, before I read this passage, happens at exactly the same time as Judges. Sometimes we get the idea that the books of the Bible are in a chronological order and so something happens right after that, right after that. And that's not true. This happens at exactly the same time. In fact, when we read the first verse, you will understand why. When it says in Ruth 1, 1, moving to verse 5, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. So this tells you that what happened before that you just read, this is going on at the same time. There was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So she is now a widow living in a foreign country with no husband and no sons and two Gentile daughter-in-laws. Now turn just a few pages further, if you would, to 1 Samuel. and the beginning of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, There was a certain man... 
from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu. Sounds like tofu, but just, you know, Tohu. Son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Close your eyes and pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we pray that over these next few minutes, your spirit will bear witness with ours. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication. Cultural, generational, language, whatever it might be. Would you rush in over the threshold of our heart and speak to us, we pray, that when we leave here, we might say, surely the Lord has spoken to us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. And everyone said, amen. There was a park ranger by the name of Roy Sullivan who served in the Shenandoah National Park. He was struck by lightning seven times in his life. It may be a world record. By the way, have any of you here ever been struck by lightning once? Looking around, don't see any hands. Seven times. There was another individual by the name of Ann Hodges. In 1954, she was laying on her couch when a rock came flying through her roof and hit her on the hip while she was laying on the couch. The University of Alabama Science Lab determined that it was a meteorite, and they said the odds of a meteorite falling from the sky, going through a roof, and hitting an individual is one in every 9,000 years. Let that just sink in. Once in every 9,000 years. How unlikely is that? There was a husband and wife in Belmont, California in 2002. Both of them on the same day won two completely different lotteries. One of them won $126,000 in a Fantasy Five lottery. And the other one did a little bit better and won $17 million in a Super Lotto Plus. Odds makers, and I don't know who makes these odds for this, but odds makers put the odds at the unlikely event of this happening once in every 24 million tries. These are just random episodes of long events that happen in our life today. And today, I would like to talk about something completely different than that, but how God does things sometimes that seem unlikely to us. In fact, as I read my Bible, it becomes increasingly apparent to me that God is the God of the unlikely. He seems to love to move and to do things in seasons of times and in ways that nobody would expect. In fact, as you read the scripture, he doesn't just love it. He seems to cherish these moments of times when he can do something, when he uses unlikely instruments in unlikely times with unlikely results. Now, for those of you, and I'm looking around today, and there's still a number of you that I don't have any idea who you are. My name's Doug DeMint. I get to be the pastor of this church, and I've been away for three months, and I'm just coming back, and I'm so grateful to see so many new faces 
But while I was traveling, I had a host of conversations with spiritual leaders from around the country, and we were talking about the season that we are in as the church of a whole in America and perhaps even the world. Now, I am becoming an old dude, but I want you to know that this season that we have been in the last couple of years is like nothing I have ever seen before. So what I want to do as I was approaching the Lord is, Lord, how do you feel about this unlikely season? What do you want to do in this? And so I'd like to review the passages of Scripture that I just read. And in fact, in Judges 21, 25, as you look at that, you would have to say, for those of you that are biblically literate and understand the book of Judges, it seems as if this would be an unlikely time for God to do anything dramatic. In fact, the book of Judges has often been referred to by different people as a roller coaster of champions. There's Samson, there's Jephthah, there's Deborah, there's Barak, there's Gideon. But, but I, would, I would say to you that Judges, the book of Judges, is not like a roller coaster. It actually is a gradual slide toward the abyss that is interrupted every now and then with a God-given champion. Because by the end of the book of Judges, if you, how many of you have read your whole Bible? you will recognize that by the time you get to the last two chapters, I'm a pastor and I don't even know how to preach out of those. It gets so grimy and so nasty that the book of Judges finishes by just oozing out into this delta of spiritual confusion. And so when you get to the last verse, that's what is happening when it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, there was an individualized personal deception and it seemed like it's an unlikely time for God to do anything in it. Then you move over to the book of Ruth, which is happening simultaneously at the same time as the book of Judges. And so while there is this spiritual confusion that's happening, there's also a famine in the land in the southern part of Judah around Bethlehem. And there's a man that lives there with his wife and his two sons, and because of the famine, they are fleeing their home, and they're crossing the Jordan River, and they go into the Gentile land of the Moab, Moabites, and there the Scripture says that they prosper for about 10 years. During this time, during this level of prosperity that they find, their two sons get to the age where they marry, and they find women to marry that are Gentiles become Gentile daughter-in-laws. I have to imagine that it's not necessarily the dream of every Jewish mother for her sons to find this, but so be it, and they seem to be somewhat happy there. Then the husband dies. Then the boys die, one right after the other. And then the famine that they had left to run from crosses the river and hits Moab. And so she decides at this particular time, I'm better off going back home to Bethlehem, and now she is an old woman, a widow, no husband, no sons alive to take care of her. She has two Gentile daughter-in-laws, and she releases these girls to go back home to their homeland. She says, listen, I am in no condition to take care of you, and you are in no condition to take care of me, so go back home. Maybe by chance your life will be better. Maybe you can find somebody else to come in. And Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, takes her up on it, and she leaves to go back home. This other girl, Ruth, looks at her, and she goes, Nope, I'm staying. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you have daughter-in-laws that are obstinate. I do not, Malia, if you're watching this. 
But some of you may have daughter-in-laws with minds of their own that you just look at you and say, nope, I'm not doing anything that you say. I, I can picture it. This is not necessarily a rebellious statement as much as it is that this girl looks at her and says, I love you too much to leave you alone. And this is where we get that famous speech that all of you know so well. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And I find it fascinating because I have been at weddings where they have couples say this to each other, and I'm thinking to myself, that's not biblical. If you want to pull that together in the right way, you really need the bride to turn around and look at her mother-in-law and say to her, hey, Mom, I'm with you. Where you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I'm staying. Now, if you can pull that off in a wedding, I would love to see that. But Ruth goes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back across the Jordan and back to Bethlehem. And then the people that see Naomi that knew her from 10 years ago that they hadn't seen her said, Naomi, is that you? Now, we all know that they knew exactly who she was, but that oftentimes when you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time, you might respond in that way. And Naomi is now coming back, a widow, having lost her sons, has a daughter-in-law that she can't scrape off her shoe. She's coming back to the house, and she's just not in a good mood. And she starts to tell her friends that call her out by name, Naomi, it's so good to see you. And, and Naomi, which her, her name in Hebrew means full, bountiful, full of blessings, like a basket full of fruit. She said, don't call me Naomi. I was full of blessings when I left, even though she really wasn't because she was escaping a famine. And then she blames it all on God by saying, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me and made my life bitter and empty. How many of you know that when we get into trouble, we like to blame God? Why are you doing this to me? It doesn't make any sense. If you'd just listened to my advice, I would have come out of this all right, and I'd be praising you for it. And so now she comes back home, and she says, don't call me by my name. Call me by another name, Mara, which literally means toxically bitter. In other words, when I left here, I was full. Now I am a bitter, angry old woman who is mad at God, and I have this Gentile daughter-in-law that is with me all the time that can't do anything to help me. I'm just angry. And we look at this and we think, what an unlikely time for God to be able to do anything. And so she sends her daughter-in-law into the fields to glean. Now, in this day and age, we're not really familiar with what gleaning means, but in that day, if you owned a field, you could not harvest it all the way to the corners. You had to leave the corners there. You had to leave the edges there unharvested so that the poor people could come in and find some grain, and that's how they would fill themselves. Or once the harvesters have gone through, they could not go through again and do it again. So there was always grain laying around. And so she sends her daughter-in-law, she goes, please go and glean some grain for us and so Ruth goes out to glean and then she comes home at the end of the very first day and she comes home with bags of grain and Naomi looks at her and goes you gleaned all of that and she goes well not exactly you see I was out there in the field gleaning and a man came up on a horse and began to ask me some questions and after talking to him for a few minutes he loaded me up with groceries and she goes Tell me what the man looks like. And so Ruth describes the man, and Naomi goes, 
That's Boaz. He's my kinsman, and he is rich. Here's the deal. Tomorrow when you go out to glean, slap some lipstick on. <laughs> and so Boaz falls in love with Ruth. They marry. They have a child by the name of Obed. Obed marries, has a child by the name of Jesse. Jesse marries, has a child by the name of David. And through this Gentile daughter-in-law comes the greatest king of Israel, and through his DNA comes Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And we look at that, and we say, how unlikely is that? Interesting enough, at the same time in Bethlehem, there's a man who has two wives. He's a polygamist. So first thing we do is, how in the world can God ever work through a polygamist family? One of the wives is capable of having children, and the other, Hannah, is barren. And this is a real curse to her. The one wife is mocking her and taking superior, superiority over her because of this issue. And so Hannah goes to the tabernacle in Shiloh to pray. And one of the things that I love about this scripture is this tells you how dysfunctional spiritual life was in the temple during this time. When she is praying passionately, the priest thinks she's drunk. He can't even tell the difference between somebody who's passionately praying and somebody who's stoned out of their mind. And he comes up to her and he says, listen, woman, don't come into the temple this way. Go clean yourself up and get sober. And she goes, I'm not drunk. I'm passionately pursuing God for an answer. And he says to her, you're going to have a child. And she was the child by the name of Samuel. It's okay. It's okay. And Samuel then becomes a prophet. He becomes the prophet that goes to the village of Bethlehem and anoints a little boy by the name of David as king. How unlikely is that? I believe God loves this stuff. I think he does it intentionally. So the question then becomes, well, we look at it, well, that's all biblical times. You know, that was like thousands of years ago. So what about today? What about now? I could have chosen a dozen unlikely times in the history of our nation and in the history of our world to talk about, but I just chose just a few because I want to highlight them to you. The first one is in England in 1738. One of the most unlikely times for God to do anything and one of the most unlikely places for him to do it was England in 1738 at the height of the gin craze. Gin was cheap. It was accessible. It became the drug of choice for England's poor. And as a result of it, entire communities became addicted to it. In fact, it is said, the average consumption per person, including men, women, children, and babies, was 2.2 gallons per person in London. In fact, so much of this was going around that there were 7,000 gin bars in 1738. The most common sign in London read, get drunk here for a penny. There was a bar for every 92 persons. Let me just extrapolate that and put that in something that we might understand today. If the same ratio was true today, there would need to be 5,000 meth labs in Onondaga County to equal what they were. There was levels of burglary and theft and prostitution all over. There was a rise in child sex trafficking, and we look at this and say, what an unlikely time for God to do anything. 
But let's, let's move it a little bit closer to us. And some of you, as I talk about this, we're old enough to remember some of this. What about the United States in 1967? You know, as we move into this series, there's a few of it that will remember, and I certainly do. 1967 to 69, the terrible times in America. There were riots, drugs everywhere. The Vietnam War was dividing our country. There was the assassination of Dr. King, stirring up racial strife and hatred. It was a terrible time. But in 1967, there was this romantic idea that everybody would go to the Haight-Asbury district of San Francisco for the summer of love. Some of you remember that. And if you remember, if you're as old as I am and some of you qualify, you'll remember that there was a statement that said, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to put some flowers in your hair because when you get there, you're going to find some loving people there. But that is not what they found there. They thought it was going to be the summer of love and free sex and drugs, and instead what it turned into was a Zodiac killer, street-hardened pimps who turned teenage girls from the Midwest into streetwalkers, and they invented new sexually transmitted diseases, according to the NBC News report. It was an unlikely season for God to do anything. Now, who might God choose in these unlikely seasons to be an instrument? Now, for those of you that know me, you know I've got a vivid imagination. It borders on blasphemous from time to time as I, as I begin to picture what Scripture might have looked like and what the conversation between God and the angels might look like. So if you're uptight about that thing, just relax. Just relax and hear me out. But in my imagination, I sometimes think of God standing there and he's looking out over unlikely circumstances and he's going, that's my man. That's my woman, and the angels are going, ooh, ah, mm, yeah, ooh, just don't see that. So go back with me to England in 1738, at the height of this gin craze, and God says, I need someone who is so anointed and so powerful and so influential that they can bring nationwide revival and break this national drug addiction. Whom shall I choose? And about that time, there were three men that were graduating from Oxford University. John and Charles Wesley, they were brothers, and they had a friend by the name of George Whitfield. These three men modestly created a group on campus that they titled The Holy Club. When they graduated, John and Charles Wesley begin to seek God and say, Lord, we are so confident in who we are in Christ and the things that we can do, so we want you to send us to the worst place in the world, the place that is the hardest to evangelize. Give us the worst people. You can count on us. And they ended up in Georgia, hoping to minister to the Indians there. Interesting enough, they never, while they were there, ever saw one or met an Indian in Georgia. When they got to Georgia, Charles Wesley was constricted to become the personal secretary of General Oglethorpe, the founder of Georgia. John Wesley was sent to a, be a parish priest at an upscale, very wealthy Church of England congregation in Savannah, Georgia, for which he quickly recognized he was woefully unprepared. John Wesley falls in love with the daughter of one of the wealthiest men in Savannah, proposes to her, to which she said, no. John Wesley, being the man of God that he is, discovered that he was so carnal and anger, 
angry and hate-filled that when she came to be served communion the next Sunday, he refused to serve her. Passed her right by. The problem with that was that in that church, if you refused to to serve a woman communion, it meant that you had provable evidence that she was living a sexually impure life. So her rich father instantly sues John Wesley for libel to which he runs away from town through the swamps to find his brother, General Oglethorpe. They put him on a ship back to England to save his life. And he writes in his diary, I went to America to save the Indians, but oh, who will save me? And God snaps his finger and says, that's my man. That's the man that I need. A fallen, failed missionary who is completely demoralized, not even sure he's saved. This is John Wesley, who, by the way, I find it very interesting, is is only five feet four inches tall. I love knowing that. He's got a high-pitched, nasally voice. And when he got back home, because he was bilingual and could speak English and German, he went with some German Moravians to a Bible study one night where they heard Martin Luther's theological preface to the book of Romans being read in German. I bet that was spine-tingling. And yet God does something in this man's heart. And he says, I felt my heart warmed strangely in a way by God. And the greatest revival in the history of Europe hit. It left the oceans, and Thomas Cope took it to India. Francis Asbury brought it to the colonies. It became a worldwide revival. One of the greatest revivals of all time in the history of our world came out of a gin craze in 1738 and 39 using an unlikely instrument because he's the god of the unlikely. So what about 1967 in San Francisco? God looks at poor, burned-out, drugged-up hippies that came to find a summer of love and found only despair, and God looks out and says, I need someone who can touch these hippies. I know. I'll use hippies to win hippies. And the angel says, God, do we have this right just want to make sure as we're writing down the annals of history that we we heard you right. You're going to use drugged out, burned out, bell-bottom wearing, dirty-feeted, barefooted hippies to usher in a charismatic movement that will change the United States. And God said, that's my plan. And so the hippies, unwilling to go home to their parents, burned out in San Francisco, discovered that there was only one hope, and they turned to Jesus Christ. And the result was the late 1960s, early 1970s, became the Jesus people that then became the charismatic movement that grew a lot of Assembly of God churches in the early 1970s as people began to recognize the power of the Holy Spirit, and it ushered in one of the greatest revivals in American history, and it happened without a person. Unlikely seasons... Unlikely times, unlikely instruments. And the Bible is filled with these, filled with them. Think about Moses for a minute. The people of God have been in bondage for 430 years, and everybody knows that the sooner you're in bondage, the sooner you want to get out so that the chances of survival are good. But when the angels are saying, God, how quickly do you want to do this? God says, let's just wait a minute. 430 years later, 
when the Hebrew people are so confused that they don't even know the name of their own God anymore. God says, seems like a pretty unlikely time, but I've got a man. And the angel said, Lord, who are you going to send? And God said, I've got this guy. He's been living in the desert on the backside for 40 years, and he had to run for his life because he committed voluntary manslaughter. He doesn't think much of himself, but he's my man. And the angel said, okay, so you're going to use an 80-year-old felon that hasn't talked to people in 40 years to be the instrument that you're going to do. God says, that's my man. That's my man. Moses himself did not feel very likely for this. He says, at 80 years old, I can't talk plain. And Lord, why would you choose me? And while he's standing by that burning bush when God is calling him, I'm sure he thought, Lord, if you're going to send me, can you give me like a special power? How about lightning coming out of my fingertips? Just something that can call attention to the fact that I can't talk. And how about... You send armed angels with me that show up that wherever I walk, here are these gigantic angels. And God says, I got a better idea. What's that you've got in your hand? It's a stick. Perfect. (laughs) Just what I need. I'm going to take an 80-year-old felon who can't talk with a stick in his hand, and I'm going to turn Egypt upside down. The God of the unlikely. Or in the first century church, Remember, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church was in its fledgling stage. It was just getting started. And the angel said, Lord, who are you going to choose to to send the gospel to the Gentiles? And God said, I got a man. You see that guy over there? He hates the church. In fact, he hates Christians. He loves to kill them, and he holds coats while people are martyred. And in fact, right now he's on his way to Damascus to arrest Jews, to bring them back in chains. That's my guy. And the angels are going, you've got to be kidding me. And God, God chooses Saul of Tarsus and turns him into the apostle Paul. Are you beginning to see the trend? We serve a God of the unlikely. And in the early 1900s, when, during the time when World War I is dominating the world scene and people around the world are in survival mode, it seemed like a pretty unlikely time for anything to happen. And God says, this is the perfect time for an all-out worldwide Pentecostal revival to take place. And the angel said, Lord, who are you going to choose? Now, you would expect them by now that they're just going to keep their mouths shut. And God says, I got my eye on a poverty-stricken, one-eyed black man. And I'm going to send him to the perfect place to start revival. California. And the angel's going, Lord, we've done a demographic study California is not your best option if you want to pull this off and God said I'm sending a man by the name of William Seymour a poor one-eyed black man who could barely read the Bible that he carried and he went downtown to Los Angeles and rented an abandoned livery stable I bet it was fun cleaning that place up and he began preaching And the greatest Pentecostal revival of all time began in the inner city called Azusa Street in an abandoned livery stable because God chooses unlikely vessels and unlikely times to do his work. And today, 580 million spirit-filled Christians worldwide come from the line of a destitute black man with one eye and a bunch of hippies with dirty feet because God is the God of the unlikely. What a mighty God we serve. Now, 
Since I know you're going to eat here, I don't feel bad holding you. Can I get five more minutes? Thank you. This is the same God that sits on the throne in 2022. This is the same God that's been sitting on the throne during a pandemic. And as the church and the Christian world around us is wondering, this seems like an unlikely time. I just want you to know I am not a prophet and I'm not making a prediction. But if you trace the handprints of God and the way that he has moved throughout history, does it not seem as if this might just be the unlikely time for another revival of the power of the Spirit of the Lord to come? I'm glad you're clapping. And I'm glad you've liked that because now it's about you. Because in order for a revival to take place, Christians have to talk. So here's where I'd like you to start. You may have some neighbors on your street that have just gone through a nasty divorce. And their teenage kids are out on your street and they're acting it out and acting up because they don't know what to do with the emotions that they're feeling. And it might be very well that God says to you, I want you to go across the street and I want you to minister to them. You're going, just, just a second, God. We don't even vote for the same people. I've seen the signs in their lawns. We don't, we don't have anything in common. I am the most unlikely person. to go and speak on your behalf to them. And God says, did you not hear that message Sunday about me and unlikely? I do great things in unlikely. And if today you feel unlikely, you're just the person God needs. He's got his hand on you. And maybe today you're here and you say, I, I'm not a Christ follower. I'm sitting here listening to you talk about the things that God has done in the past. And today, maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online right now, and you'd say, I'm the most unlikely person to ever yield my life to Jesus. If you knew my life, if you knew what I'm going through, you would say that Jesus has turned his back on me. Maybe like Naomi, you feel as if God's done something to you, and you're angry, and you're bitter, and you've blamed it all on God. But God changed her fortunes, changed her life in an instant. And if you're here today and you say, I have no hope, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I don't know which way to turn, how unlikely is it that right now you're listening to this message of an unlikely God using unlikely instruments that can change your unlikely life into a righteous one who can change it all? Would you stand with me? Instrumentalist, would you please come? You are not beyond his reach. I'm going to ask that you just close your eyes for a moment. And I'm just going to look around the room for a moment. And if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, you've never invited him to come into your life. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, my life seems so helpless and so hopeless and I'm, I'm battling shame and guilt and all of these things. I want you to know that there's a Savior today that has designed your world so that you're here right now in this place at this time. Or maybe he's designed your TV watching so that you're watching online at this very moment. This is a divine opportunity of God to step into your world and change it.